And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be sitting. Tonight's uh, sermon is going to be titled, Thy Kingdom Come. And so, preaching is a um, fun thing, nonetheless. But I am thankful that I'm not the one up here, continually. But nonetheless... Preaching is, first and foremost, the Scripture is our foundation. We stand upon Scripture. We preach from Scripture. But it's also the authority that we submit to. And since that, we must answer Scripture with Scripture. Um, we must be held accountable to it. There's nothing, I'm not getting up here necessarily giving my thoughts or my views or my true statements, but nonetheless, we preach from Scripture and Scripture alone. So with that being said, I'm very thankful that we have people such as Alexander and Justin who are devoting their lives to do this, who we get to walk with them this season of life as they pursue seminary and as we get to watch them firsthand grow in the maturity of proclaiming God's truth. And so thankful for them and being able to sit under them and also for their wonderful wives such as TK and Lydia, uh, soon-to-be wife, I should say, (laughs) and their devotion to being married or soon-to-be-married to a man of God and their answering their call and being a good um, helper to them. One thing that we do here is expository preaching, and that is we pick a book of the Bible, and we preach through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this is what church tradition, church history has done for 2,000 years. And it's very important because we believe all of Scripture, every word of it, to be the inerrant word of God, to be what God spoke, what God desires for us to have today. And so through expository preaching, you can't, dance around it. You can't skip passages. You can't get away from the hard truths of Scripture. So doing expository preaching, we are hopefully preaching the full counsel of God and being able to cover all the wisdom that he um, desires to share with us um, today and for our life today. My hope tonight is to come full circle, to start with Christ and eventually come back to Christ. And I want to give kind of 30,000 feet view of Jesus' ministry and what he does, what he came to accomplish, and how he does it. Um, so then the question is, how did we get here? How did we get here to verse 14 and 15? And so we know that Luke was a Gentile. Um, he was a follower of Paul, not necessarily a disciple of Jesus. And he is writing an account to Theophilus um, that he wants to be stir and solid and, and steady. And uh, so Luke makes it his own task to go out to seek out references and interview people and to pull and compile information and testimonies all that he can so that he can give the most accurate um, view or accurate uh, account of Jesus and his life and his ministry. We have just a couple weeks ago we dived into Jesus' baptism that took place and then last week we heard about Jesus' temptation and now it moves right into verse 14 it says and Jesus returned in the power of spirit to Galilee. However this isn't the um, it's not like Jesus was led into the wilderness and faced the temptations and went straight to Galilee. Actually, we have a brink of, uh, not brink, a brink of time here. There's actually a year gap from when the temptations ended and when Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. Um, the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, don't cover this gap, but only actually the book of John does. And so we see in John, John chapter 2, Jesus, after temptation, goes to the Passover in Jerusalem, then John chapter 3, he has the um, conversation with Nicodemus. And then even in chapter 4, we have uh, Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Um, and so this is considered the Judean ministry. So this is a year gap between the temptation and then after that year, 
he starts his Galilean ministry. And so this is where we take off, is after this um, one year. And so now this is his, what we consider his public ministry. The John 2, 3, and 4 is more private. It's more conversational. It's just Jesus and a handful of people at the Passover. It's just Jesus and Nicodemus conversing. It's just Jesus and the woman, the well, in dialogue. So it's, it's Jesus still doing his ministry, but it's more private. So this is considered Jesus' public ministry, where now he's going to go to the synagogues, he's going to go to crowds, he's going to sit on mountaintops, he's going to proclaim God's truth and, and start to do the miracles in and, and vast numbers and um, great majority that we see throughout Scripture and the Gospels. And so the, my first observation is, in Jesus returned the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And so it's, what is this so special? What is the significance of Galilee? Um, you know, when we're reading through Scripture, sometimes we can use contextual clues to help us understand the significance or importance of a place or a name or event that is happening. But another way we can is cross-reference. And so my encouragement is, I hope when we come across names or places and we don't quite understand why, that we would do some um, deeper digging, if you will, and start to try to understand why these names, these, these places, these regions are being brought about. And so um, it's important because the Galilean ministry starts here in Luke 4, uh, verse 14, and it continues all the way to Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 50. So probably the next two years of our preaching will be in the region of Galilee. And so with that understanding, I want to give more um, context of what's happening. So like I mentioned earlier, Matthew 4 and Mark 1 both mention that the Galilean ministry begins. Um, and only John mentions the Judean ministry. So Matthew 4 um, paints in a little bit more of the importance of Galilee and what's taking place. And so I would just like to jump right to that Old Testament passage. And this is Isaiah chapter 9. If you'll turn there with me. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 reads as this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So Naphtali... Naphtali and Zebulun are two of the sons of Jacob. They are brothers to Joseph. And so when Joshua and the Israelites conquer the promised land, they are two of the sons, two of the tribes who get territories. So Naphtali gets a territory right around Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee, and Zebulun gets it right to the west, close to bordering um, the ocean. And these are two of the most northern tribes. And that is significant because there are two major highways that run through Israel. There's the coastal highway, which is more inland, more coastal. And there's the king's highway, which is on the far eastern side of the region of Israel. And this is, although none, neither of these are mentioned in name by, in scripture, at least to my knowledge, they're crucial because all throughout the Old Testament, all the events that are taking place, they are at play. They're, ta- they're happening. So, for example... Um, when Babylonian, they first conquer Egypt, they take the king's highway, which allows them to go all the way around Israel and then take Egypt and then come back and conquer Israel. 
where the coastal highway is a direct path straight down into Jerusalem. So here in Isaiah 9, what's taking place, this, the, the no gloom, the anguish, this is uh, the uh, impending doom of Assyri- the Assyrian army coming and conquering Jerusalem. But in order for them to get to Jerusalem to overtake the, the, the Israel and Judah, they must go through the coastal highway. And so the first region, the first tribe they run into is Naphtali and Zebulon. And so you have to imagine if this is the forefront of the nation. This is where a lot of the wars and where a lot of battles took place. This is where a lot of blood was shed. And war, no matter what period of time it is, is bloody, violent, gruesome. And so thus, battlefields take decades to recover, to actually become tillable and, and have crop, or buildings, you know, like homes. You, we can enjoy in so much of American history because it's been preserved so well because there hasn't been like a lot of wars or battles in our backyard. But in the Middle East, history, because of all the wars that have taken place, buildings and historical monuments and places have been destroyed time and time again. So it's harder for them to preserve their history. So in the same way, we know that we can, we can read that Naphtali and Zebulon, their land was a place that was torn apart, that was always experiencing war because they were on the forefront of all the impending armies and nations, whether it's Tyre or Syria or, or Assyria or Babylon, who's coming for Israel. This is where the battles and wars would have taken place and their land would have been devastated. It's also important because significant people wouldn't have lived here. Like I said, there's no heritage. There's not a lot of history. There's not a lot of like, things to be necessarily proudful in this region. That's why even um, Nathaniel, uh, the disciple, says when he hears about Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth would be in this Galilean region. It says, like, what good is there? What good can come from Nazareth? Um, so there's not, like I said, there's not a lot of things to be prideful about. So thus, like, there's not a lot of significant people there. It's not like rich people had, like, a country, beautiful stay there. It's like, no, like, the scholars, the people of importance, the Pharisees, they would all dwell in Jerusalem where the temple was. And so Galilee in this region was full of, um, I guess, a bunch of nobodies, if you will. But it is interesting because 11 of the 12 disciples would be called from Galilee. It is in these Galilean ministry that Christ would call 11 of his 12 disciples, the, the 12th one being Judas, who was Judean, is from what we can understand. And so we see the purpose of Galilee and Christ starting here is to fulfill the prophecy um, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them has light shine. And Christ and his message is that light that now comes. But also we get into the heart of God a little bit. And we've seen that the, this region, this place that is inadequate, that is written off, that has no purpose, that isn't, you know, there's nothing necessarily good in there. It's like where... Christ first starts his public ministry in proclaiming the kingdom coming and sharing the good news of the gospel. And so this is a little minor point of my sermon, but geography matters, um, not just in scripture, but even in our own lives. Like where you are at, where you're working, who are you living with, the very house that you're living, like who your neighbors to, it, it matters to God. It's not insignificant, it's not random, it's not luck or whatever magic. It's, it's for a divine purpose and, and God's sovereign will. He, he's desiring to use it. And so I, I would encourage you guys, if you haven't figured out what that is and how he desires you to use it, to search and um, ask the Lord to graciously reveal that. Um, so then next is, why does Christ do ministry? 
why does the God man have to come and do ministry? Couldn't he just snap his fingers and accomplish everything he wants to? Or why does he for three years seek out to serve people um, in many different ways and shapes and forms? And so there, there's probably many reasons and conclusions to this, but one that I want to stress on tonight and go a little bit more in depth when we're talk- as to really paint in a, a much deeper and beautiful picture as we walk through the entire ministry of Jesus is something called uh, the doctrine of threefold office. And so this is, I, I believe, an overview of Christ's ministry and what he came to do and what he came to accomplish and what he is doing even now. Um, as we speak. In the Old Testament, there are three major roles, three major positions or, um, yeah, roles that people play, that they fulfill, and that's prophet, priest, and king. Throughout the entire Old Testament, you can't really get away from a book that doesn't have one of these significant things. And all of this is just a shadow of an archetype of who Christ will be. In the Old Testament, no one fulfills more than one of these roles. You know, Moses was a prophet, but he wasn't also a king. David was a king, but he also wasn't a priest. These roles were specifically for God-ordained roles that he anointed people into and were fulfilled only by one person at a time. Um, So this is a shadow pointing to what Christ will do and that Christ actually fulfills all three of these roles. And we see it in his ministry, we see it in the New Testament, and we see it even today in our own lives. And so I, I want to go a little bit deeper, deeper into all three of these roles. Um, so the first role is role as a prophet. And this is intercede on behalf of God to the people. He is the person who communicates God's message to God's people. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. Starting in verse 15, this is Moses speaking, and he is prophesying of a new prophet, one who will come later, who will be much greater than he is himself. And so it reads like this, starting in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen, just as you desire the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so this, our understanding and belief of this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, that he is the greater prophet. And this is a little side note, just because um, I experienced it more. Muslims will take this passage and say that this is pointing to Muhammad. Um, This is rather quite common, actually, um, just even in recent conversations. It's, it's, they'll take this and say that it's not Jesus, it's Muhammad that it's pointing to, but we know that it is Jesus, that the greater prophet who Moses speaks of, who he prophesies about, is Jesus. And so prophets in the Old Testament had many different roles, many different things to do. Um, one thing that they did was they foretell events, um, they prophesied about events that were come to happen, whether it be impending destruction or doom or the uh, remnant uh, living or coming to pass. And we see that even with Jesus. Um, Jesus prophesies about his death many times. Um, he talks about his betrayal, that one of his disciples will betray him. 
Another thing that uh, prophets would do is they perform healings and physical healings and bring health back to a body and healing a, a limb or something like that, or even back to life. And lastly, they would do miracles. We know we see prophets controlling weather or praying for rain to cease or along these things. And we also see Christ commanding nature and weather and doing miracles that um, are just unanswerable or not solvable apart from being God himself. Uh, there's a handful of times throughout uh, Scripture that we'll see Jesus be called a prophet. He does something, and someone says, like, you are the prophet. One of them is when they're trying to figure out who he is. They're saying, like, is this John the Baptist? Is this Jeremiah? Or is this one of the prophets? Um, in John 9, he uh, healed a blind man who was in the temple, and the, and the man cries out, like, you are the prophet. Um, and so we, we see that other people recognize this, but not necessarily, he, he's not known as much a prophet in our mind, in our eyes, as much as he was to maybe some of these people in Scripture. But he is the greater prophet, the fulfillment of the prophet, for two reasons. Um, the first thing is that all Old Testament prophecies are pointing to him, him specifically. I think about five years from now, when we get to Luke 24 and we read about the road to Emmaus, and how Jesus appeared himself to two disciples, and he walked through every book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and how all of it pointed to him, how he was the fulfillment of it. So he's a greater prophet in the sense that all the prophecies are about him, so thus, like, there's no longer a need to be a prophet. There's no longer for prophecies to continue. Um, but secondly, not only was Jesus the messenger, in the sense that he came and he spoke the message from God, but he was also the message of God. The word became flesh. So there's no need for any more prophets. And Jesus is the greatest because he's the messenger, but also he, the messenger, but also delivers the message himself. Uh, and we see the, the fruition of this in Hebrews 1. I'll read it for you real quick. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So we see that Jesus is the, the cultivation, the, the climax. He is the greatest prophet. And we see this throughout his um, ministry. And you got to think, Jesus doing his ministry and proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the truth, there's no one better to learn truth from than truth itself. And how... Um, wonderful or radical that must have been. The second role that Christ fulfills, and we see all throughout the Old Testament, is a priest. Christ is a priest. Priests were appointed by God to do three things. They were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sins, to uh, appease God. They were secondly to bring the people to God. The priests were the people in charge of, um, we'll say, the, well, I don't say heart posture, but they were in charge of disciplining the people and making sure that they are worshiping the God rightfully. And so we just got down with Hosea before this, and we see it saw throughout the book of Hosea. When the priests were corrupt, when the priests were wicked, then they led the people astray. And so the priests are the ones who are in charge to lead the people closer to God to make sure they are rightfully worshiping um, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And thirdly, priests were to pray to, and to intercede on behalf of the people. That on behalf of the people, they were co constantly praying. It was the understanding that in the temple 24-7, there would be people 
praying and worshiping God all the time. So Jesus is our great high priest. He is both the perfect sacrifice in that he's the lamb of God, the one without blemish, the one without any sin, but he is also the priest who offered the sacrifice. Because as we saw, like priests can be corrupted. Priests can dwell in sin. Priests can lead people astray. Christ is the fulfillment in the sense that he does not lead us astray. He does not become corrupted. Um, and we see this, we can see this throughout his ministry, and we have already seen it already in his baptism, and the idea that he was being baptized as in all priests would have been baptized in the sense of being cleansed. It was common for priests before they entered the temple to be baptized, especially the once a year when they enter the Holy of Holies, for them to go through this extended cleansing process. Um, so yeah, we, we see that he is uh, spotless. And then when it comes to bring the people to God, um, Old Testament priests could only time and time again enter the presence of God, and actually only once a year. It wasn't a common thing or everyday thing. Um, but now with Christ, we can always boldly approach the throne of God. Now that Christ is our great high priest who is reigning forever, um, we can have full confidence that the presence of God is not this mystical, far-off thing, but now we can um, boldly approach the throne. And so Hebrews 10 uh, captures this very, very well. Hebrews 10, 19 reads as such, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and again, even, even priests in the Old Testament never had confidence to enter the holy of holies. They would have to tie a rope around their leg and go with bells, and if the bells ever started stop jingling, they'd have to be pulled out because they would be killed by the presence of God. So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, because of our high priest, now we have confidence to not just enter once a year or just for a period of time, but forever and for all of eternity. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. So again, it's not just Christ's sacrifice that accomplishes this, but it's Christ being the priest who ordains this and consecrates it and now, now consistently does this, that we can um, have peace and understand that he is this great high priest. And thirdly, the role of the priest in the Old Testament is to pray and intercede on behalf of the people to God. We can have full assurance that Jesus, even now as we speak, is making prayers and interceding on, on our behalf. Um, whether specific requests or specific uh, petitions, and it, it's, we need to fully understand that it's, he's God in the sense that he knows and sees all, that it's not a priest who could only temporarily or momentarily take one person's um, burden, but we have a, the God-man who can hear everyone's at once and answers all. But also, he's the man in the sense that he is rightly able to represent us. That he has walked as we have walked. He has walked in our shoes, and he knows our temptations. He knows our sin. Uh, Burkhoff has this quote. I'd love to read it for you guys. It says this. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are neg negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds, 
which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. Against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. So this is the great high priest who we have now, the fulfillment of it, who sits on heaven, who is ever interceding on our behalf and praying for us. And thirdly, the last role that Christ fulfills is king. Um, Gabriel foretells us when he appears to Mary, and he tells her that your son will reign from, I will give him the throne of David from his sons. Um, but we also know that kingship to God's people isn't what God wanted originally. That this is actually what the people wanted. That the people wanted to be like the other nations surrounding the area, the Israelites did. And so they asked God to give them a king. And God, knowing the heart of man, knowing our wickedness and corruption that comes with power, did not originally want to give them a king. But to redeem it, Christ becomes our king. And so we see in Christ's ministry, it's actually the runway to his kingship. That you would think that a king, to reach his throne, would conquer in power and force. But Jesus was a God and a king who came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. And so we can understand that Jesus' ministry, as we continue to read in the next five chapters, is his runway into kingship. And he shows what his kingdom is about. Because time and time again, he, he shares, he says, like, my, he tells Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That it doesn't make sense to us. So he shows us how he will rule. He also shows us um, how the kingdom will be, uh, how the kingdom will be expanded, how it will be furthered. Um, and he will rightfully be the one who reigns in justice and in righteousness. And Ephesians 1 says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus now reigns as king, and his ministry is the runway into his kingship. And so Jesus fulfills all three of these Old Testament roles perfectly and ultimately, and that he is prophet, priest, and king. So as we continue into Jesus' ministries in the weeks and months and years to follow, I hope that we have this in the back of our mind, that like everything Jesus is doing, everything he's saying, everything he's working and accomplishing can hint to one of these roles, and we see these roles being fulfilled. And even today, he is still fulfilling them to the fullest. Um, so, with that 30,000 view, then I'd like to go back into the text of what we're reading tonight. So it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified all. My first observation, the thing that I want to bring to light, is what it says, In the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Luke, um, we know this if you remember, and I only remember because I went back and listened to sermons in preparation to <laughs> tonight, is Luke emphasizes the, the working and the power of the Holy Spirit. He does it throughout the book of Luke, but he also does it in the book of Acts. 
time and time again, we see the power of the Holy Spirit being emphasized much more, well, I don't want to say much more, but more than the other Gospels, than Matthew, Mark, or John. And we need to remember that this is pre-Pentecost. Um, Pentecost is Acts 2, and so Jesus' ministry is before the Pentecost. But it is interesting, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 17 times in Luke. And every time that there is a miracle that is done, that every time Christ does a miracle or performs a healing, usually um, the, the phrase follows of like being empowered by the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. But whenever disciples or anyone else does a miracle or does a healing in Luke, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. And it, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't active in that, certainly not. But what we're saying is that Luke is really emphasizing the work of Christ in his ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit together. And so then this begs the, the question, a common question um, that, uh, maybe it's not common, maybe it's only common to my friend groups, but how did Christ work his miracles? How did Christ accomplish these miracles, these wonders, these healings, his teachings? And so I would like to rephrase the question and say that that, that is a wrong way to ask it. And to, the question should be asked not how did Christ work his miracles, but who worked Christ's miracles? We must look at the who. Um, many Old Testament miracles, we, clearly, we can clearly say that it was the Holy Spirit. You know, it wasn't Elijah doing this. It wasn't David. It wasn't, you know, an Old Testament saint. It was the Holy Spirit who was performing this miracle, performing this wonder. But where we start getting to murky uh, gray waters is that we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so thus, we need to look at who is Christ and who is accomplishing these miracles through him. Too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit and too much emphasis on the human nature of Christ can be problematic. It can lead us into some very dangerous teachings that um, there are churches that teach that today in a sense of look at your human nature, what you can do alongside the Holy Spirit, and we lose sight of the divine aspect of who Christ is. And so it's important to realize that it's persons, not natures, who do things. Is Jesus Christ the person who does things, not his divine nature or his human nature? Uh, D. Blair Smith says this, The miracle of the incarnation is that this one person became everything we are without ceasing to be everything he is. So the Christ continued to be fully God, but also became fully man without ceasing to be who he was. And so there's a litmus test that I would like to walk us through to help us understand how, not how, who did the miracles of Jesus. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 14. We're going to the story of Jesus walking on water with Peter, which starts in verse 22. Now, I won't read all of it, but we will uh, skim through it. So we know the story how Jesus, there's a storm happening, and the disciples are on the boat, and they are scared, and they look out into the storm. They see what they think to be a ghost, and it's actually Jesus out there walking on water. And Peter cries out. He says, Jesus, like, let me follow. Let me walk on the water such as you. And Peter does so. He walks on water. And so we see that Peter, by faith, when he keeps his eyes on Jesus, and through faith he is able to walk on water. But whenever he 
loses faith and looks around to, the, to nature and to the storm and to the winds and the waves, he starts to sink. And so for our litmus test, we see that Christ is walking on water, and we see that Peter is walking on water by faith. And the only difference is that Jesus is a, we would say Jesus' divine person is the only problematic um, part of this equation, if you will. But the, the argument that I have found is that Jesus is exemplifying what it means to be fully dependent on faith, on the Spirit, and it's a Spirit that upholds Christ on the water. That Peter, if he kept perfect faith that only Jesus can do, would continue to walk on water and not sink. But when, Je- when Peter loses faith, he then starts to drown. And so thus, it's not Christ's divine nature that is upholding him, that is allowing him to walk on the water, but it's his perfect faith and unity with the Spirit that is accomplishing him to, to have the power to walk on water, if you will. But this doesn't necessarily answer the question, who? Because we do not want to degrade or cast off the divine nature of Christ. And so when we read, um, so when they cry out, uh, it's a ghost. Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And this it is I is the ego I me, which is the I am of the Old Testament. Whenever uh, God appears in the burning bush, Moses asks who he is. He says, I am. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, that this is Yahweh, Yahweh himself. So Jesus is saying, it is I, it is I, Yahweh. At the same time, it's not Jesus' divine nature who is walking on water, but it is the Holy Spirit in perfect faith of Jesus who is permitting to walk on water. But nonetheless, divine nature is still there, is still present. And this takes on a, a theophany motif. In Job 9.8, it says, Who tramples the waves of the sea but Yahweh alone? So Jesus claiming he is Yahweh is him putting himself in the scripture where the disciples would have clearly understood that he is calling himself Yahweh, and since he is trampling, he is walking on these waters. But also, thirdly, we see what disciples' response is in verse 33. Um, it says, And those in the boat worship him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The disciples aren't worshiping the Holy Spirit. They're not worshiping Christ's dependency on another human being or someone else. They're worshiping Christ for who he is. And so Jesus is our example in walking um, and, and since he is fully God and fully man, but in full reliance and full faith on the Holy Spirit, he is able to accomplish all of his miracles, all the wonders, all the healings that we see throughout his ministry. So it's not wrong to say that the Spirit is working. It's not wrong to say that, you know, it's the Spirit working through Christ. However, it is wrong to say that the second person of the Trinity isn't, to say that the divine nature is somehow not there, not present. John Owen, uh, a great Puritan, would go on to say that the only divine act of the second person of the Trinity on the human nature of Christ was the decision to take its own substance with himself in the incarnation. And so it's not that in Christ's humanity, because he's divine, that he somehow loses his body and soul, or that goes away, or it's consumed or lost or gobbled up by the divinity. Um, but it's actually because of this, Christ's humanity needed the Holy Spirit in order to have communion with God. That 
Jesus Christ himself needed the Holy Spirit to have communion with God. Um, as he, says, he says this. He says, Christ's inseparable companion during his earthly ministry as a true man was the Holy Spirit. Thus, at all major events in the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit took a prominent role. In Isaiah 42, uh, prophesies about the Messiah who will be anointed with the Spirit. Uh, we see in John 34, he says that he will pour out his Spirit without measure upon Christ. We saw in baptism that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. In temptation, it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness, who met his needs, who led him out of it, who cared for him. We even see it in his death that the Holy Spirit partook in the death of Christ. And it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And so, yeah, the only, oh, not that. Christ's inseparable companion during his earthly ministry as a true man was the Holy Spirit. Thus, at all major events in the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit took a prominent role. Christ was dependent upon the Holy Spirit for him to accomplish his ministry. Uh, so then moving on, my second observation, I was in Luke, is this. So it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So the second observation is, what was Christ doing? How is he starting his ministry? What is he accomplishing? And unlike Matthew and Mark, when Christ starts his ministry in Galilee, Jesus has no mention of the miracles and healings that are taking place in the, in the Galilean ministry. Luke is the only one who does not include those in saying that the Galilean ministry starts. Now, it's not that healings and miracles didn't happen. They certainly did, and they yeah, verse 31, chapter 4 says, Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. So they, they happen, but Luke is not emphasizing that point. Luke is emphasizing the point that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. Um, so he emphasizes the teaching, and it's these very teachings when he says that in a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, this report was about Jesus' teachings is what Luke wants to draw us to conclude. And so synagogues, no one's quite sure what the origin of synagogues are or when they came about. A lot of people understood it to be maybe during the Babylonian captivity when the temple was destroyed and that the Jews were dispersed and displaced, that they would do synagogues, which would essentially be like a weekly church service in the same way that we'd understand they'd meet, meet once a week, go through an Old Testament uh, passage, and there'd be one of the elders, one of the men of the community would come up and give an explanation of it, and they would pray, um, and that, that was pretty much it. And so oh, it was a weekly source, um, and yeah, different local men are guest preachers, so it wouldn't have been uncommon for Jesus to walk in, seeing that he was from Galilee, he was from this region, to walk in and be able to have a, um, a seat at the table or have be able to discuss or to lead teachings. Um, and next week, we'll see that more uh, firsthand. Next week will be uh, what it looks like when Jesus does enter one of these synagogues and enters into a dialogue and conversation with other people within the synagogue. But 
So Jesus is entering the synagogues, and I ask the question, why synagogues? What is the significance of synagogues? Why would Jesus go to the synagogues to, to teach and to proclaim the gospel and share the news? One thing is the synagogues are public. It's not, you know, the Judaism is the main religion of the land, and so synagogues would be um, the place, it was the central hub of cities. It was a way to, like, truly to get... Uh, word to spread, you go to synagogues and it'd be communicated. You know, it's, if something happened on like a Saturday morning, you went to church on Sunday morning and then everyone in the church figured it out, then like everyone by the end of the week will know it. You know, it's like when everyone gathers together and messages are relayed, then they're passed on. And so in the same way, Christ goes to these synagogues to proclaim his message, knowing that from there they will go on, they will spread out, that they will be heard. But my emphasis is public. Bless you, Shawnee. <laughs> every, I don't want to say every other, most, the majority of world religions, their origin story and their prophet and their creator or high, holy people within it, usually have some really sketchy or, or hidden or private revelations from God or... Um, just, just these, it's clouded in mystery, if you will. Where Christianity is, is really the only one that is like completely public, completely open. It, it goes to the people. It spreads among the people. Where most other religions don't have that kind of story. There's, there's a lot of mystery in since how it created, or I'm thinking one one with Muhammad and how he receives his revelations, how he receives the Quran from Allah. And so, I find it rather soothing to know that like Christ in his ministry was not private, was not hidden, but went to the public sphere, went to the public realm, and proclaimed his message from there, not hiding anything, not different shades of gray. And so I, I just want to emphasize that. Um, and Paul and many of the New Testament saints will follow suit of this. We see all throughout Acts that Paul, when he enters the city, the first place he goes to is the synagogue. He knows that to, if he wants to truly get his message out, if he really wants to make an impact, if he wants people to hear what he has to say, to go to the synagogue and proclaim the message um, is what, where to go. And then what is he teaching? Because we know he is teaching in synagogues, but what is he teaching? And we can probably understand that he is teaching Old Testament, but just as in the road to Emmaus and how he shows the disciples how every chapter, every book, every verse of the Old Testament points to him, we can assume he's doing something along those same lines. But, the, but ultimately, he's preaching the gospel. He is preaching the same message that even John preached, that repent and believe, be baptized, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And next week, we'll go much more in depth, I hope and pray, about what the gospel is and what it truly means. Um, so then why... Why emphasize the teaching? Uh, why does Luke emphasize the teaching of Jesus, not the miracles, not the wonders, not all these other things that you could talk about? The primary purpose of Jesus in his ministry was to deliver truth, to deliver the gospel. As we said, like, he is the, the final prophet. He is not only the messenger, but he is the message. And so First and foremost is the gospel that Christ is looking to proclaim. 
the miracles and wonders and everything else falls secondary to that. Christ didn't come necessarily to heal every physical ailment, or else we'd still be seeing that today, since we are healed of every physical ailment. He didn't come to do wonders and miracles and just necessarily draw us in awe, although he certainly does that. But rather, first and foremost, is the message of the gospel that, that Christ came to teach and to proclaim. The miracles are secondary. And this is important because we live in a world where there are people who reverse that who seek and run and chase after the miracles and the working of the Spirit and being filled and empowered by the Spirit and wanting to see the kingdom of God come through those experiences, through those miraculous. And like I said, we're not saying they don't happen. Certainly not. However, that's not the purpose of the ministry and the message of what Jesus has come to share. This is important because Romans 10, 9 through 10 reads as such. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. It's only through the, the hearing and the professing of the gospel that one is saved. It's not because you are healed that you are saved. It's not because you witnessed a miracle or a wonder that you were saved. It is by the gospel and the gospel alone. So Luke, I believe, is emphasizing the teaching of Christ. Because he wants us to truly understand the importance and the role that Jesus came to seek in his ministry. Um, and as we read in Isaiah 9, it says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep, dark, dark, land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So Jesus is not only this great light, but his message is also the light that is being shown. Jesus is one and the same. You cannot separate Christ from the gospel or the gospel from Christ. Matthew Henry reads, says it like this. When the gospel comes to any place, to any soul, light comes, a great light, a shining light, which will shine more and more. It should be welcome to us as a light is to those that sit in darkness, and we should readily entertain it, both because it is of sovereign use to us and because it brings its own evidence with it. Truly the light is sweet. We can't separate Christ from the gospel. So he, he is both the public ministry and that he is the light that has come through the darkness in himself, but also his message is that as, as well. And my third observation is what is the outcome? What is the result of this, of Christ's ministry? And it reads, not only does it say, um, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, but it also says, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so the report that we see in the first verse, verse 14, um, the Greek word is phime, and that's where we get the word fame from. So you see that Christ's popularity gathered fame, that it was spread, like people couldn't help but share what was happening, what was, they were witnessing, what they were experiencing. Um, and this isn't the first time this happened. This will happen two more times in the book of Luke alone. It also happens to other Gospels, that Jesus does something, he teaches something, and his fame, his, the news about him spreads throughout the, the countryside, into the region, into Israel. But also what happens is he is glorified by all. The Greek word is, I'm going to butcher this, Alexander, doxazomenos. And the doxa is where we get the beginning of doxology from. And so this word was reserved usually for, to 
refer to God and God alone. But here Luke uses it to specifically refer to Jesus, that to testify and to partner that what Jesus is doing in his ministry is of and from God and should be glorified in it. Um, but it's interesting because it says being glorified by all. And we could probably assume that there would be Pharisees or other people who um, maybe weren't Jewish or weren't fully understanding or grasping what Christ was saying. But nonetheless, he's being glorified by all. And so I think about a sporting event. Um, when, like, uh, for example, like gymnastics. Like, I know nothing about gymnastics. But if I watch a routine that looks amazing, that just blows me away, like, you can't help but, like, applaud it. You can't help but be in awe of it, or like an Odell Beckham catch, or, you know, there's, it's like when you're, or for another example, it's like when your worst enemy does something, but you're like, oh, that was amazing, though. Like, you know, like, like, it's like, I don't like you, but man, that was amazing. And so in the same way, these Pharisees or non-religious people, upon witnessing and watching Christ, can't help but to be in awe and to glorify him and to accredit to him that he is God. Um, so people confronted with the reality of the gospel, by God's grace, will respond correctly and glorify Christ, as we see here. And so, so now, I said I want to go full circle, so now we're coming to us a little bit. We see Christ's ministry, and so my question for us tonight is, what is our ministry? What is your ministry that you are running after? As Christians, ministry is not optional. It is not an option. But the reality is, like, ministry is not something we do on weekends or on Tuesday night or Thursday morning. Ministry is our entire lives. We never stop. It's not you, you're a pastor and you preach for 40 years and you retire. As believers, we never retire. And we never schedule ministry. Ministry is our entire life and how we live it. This is why we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God's kingdom is still advancing. It is the only kingdom that will continue to advance all the way until heaven comes and meets earth. All other worldly and earthly kingdoms and your own personal kingdom will come to an end one day. But it is God's kingdom and his kingdom alone that will continue to be advanced till the end of time. So our ministry is first and foremost not our own. You know, we don't have our own ministry. We don't do something that Christ didn't do. We follow the example of Christ, and our ministry is Christ's ministry, essentially, that we are not adding to, but we are coming alongside what Christ has done and what he is accomplishing even now in furthering and advancing his kingdom, and we partner with it, that we have been entrusted with the gospel. Um, so we preach, we proclaim Christ's ministry, what he has done. And so then how do we do this? How do we, in our own lives, live out a ministry worthy of the gospel? If Christ saw his dependency on spirit, so much so that he couldn't do anything apart from it, then how much more do we think we need it? Or if Christ couldn't do a single thing apart from the Holy Spirit with his ministry, how do we think we can accomplish anything apart from the Holy Spirit? A rightful step into ministry is first the humble recognition of our desperate need and plead and dependency upon the Holy Spirit to be quite literally our everything, to be our wisdom, 
our confidence, to empower us, to give us guidance. We need the Holy Spirit first and foremost. If the Son of Man, fully God and fully man, was dependent on the Holy Spirit, how much more so are we? And what is our ministry with Christ, in Christ? And that is to proclaim the gospel. And like I said, next week we'll talk more about the gospel and what it is. But we are to proclaim the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. Like I said, not to do these miracles and wonders, although he certainly does. And they certainly have a place, and we should certainly seek after them. But however, our ministry is to lead people to Christ, to proclaim the, guys, the, the gospel. Um, and that's why Christ, that's why I believe Luke is emphasizing that, that Jesus went to the synagogues to teach, that he desires to, to teach, to share uh, first. So, of course, we should do mercy ministries, you know. I, I'm not saying do anything but the gospel. We should care for the homeless and care for the elderly and give our tithes and, and donate. But what makes you any different from, like, a morally good person who also donates their time, their effort, and their resources to help the homeless, to help the widow, to help the people in need? As Christians, we are set apart by the gospel, the gospel of Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everybody. And so the gospel must be the very thing that defines us in our ministry and how we live our lives. So much so that people should see this. Our actions, well, wait, backtrack. Maybe you've heard the quote that says, share the gospel or preach the gospel, use words when necessary. And I couldn't think of a way for Satan to deceive the church from being what the church ought to be and do what the church ought to do other than more than that, that quote. The idea that your actions, your behaviors could lead someone to Christ. Now, I'm not downplaying your actions and your behaviors and what, it, and, and what you do. Certainly, like, be obedient to Christ, you know, like, show the love, joy, peace, patience, show the fruit of the Spirit. However, that does not save anyone. It is only through the proclamation of the gospel, sharing the gospel, and someone receiving it, repenting, is someone saved. The only time someone's action ever saved someone was Jesus's, and that was his death. Our actions do not save anyone, but our actions prove our message. Our actions prove our message. You can't tell someone that they need a savior when you live your life in such a way that you know, is you're a hypocrite, you're a liar, you're a cheater, like, you, you void your message, you void the gospel. Certainly, our, our, I won't labor on this, our actions matter, I, you guys know this, but it's, our actions will never lead someone to salvation in Christ. It is only through the gospel and the gospel alone. Um, I would also argue that our ministry must be a teaching and discipling ministry. That it's not so much to just share the gospel, but we must, must lead people deeper into understanding and into grasping who God is. And so my question, or my charge would be more than, my, are you equipping yourself to be able to? I, I think about um, Lydia's fast, and it's like, I think about how many like, passive men I have in my life. And, and guys, I, I love her passive, who are not equipping themselves to one day lead their future family and to be what their wife, to lead their wife, and, and to create a culture and environment that she can thrive in, to raise up children in a way that honors the Lord, 
Um, so it's like, are we equipping? And like, ladies, are for coworkers and for children, like, are, are, you, are you just going to let you know, your own motherly instincts kicked in and, and hope that you lead someone to Christ? Or are you truly taking the time now to equip and empower yourself? But not even just outside family. But what about your friends? What about your roommates? Like people who you love and care about. Are you discipling and teaching them? Jesus, yes, proclaims the, the gospel, but he also teaches. He leads people and cultivates a deeper relationship with the, for people around him into worshiping and serving God. And so I would argue for every Christian, that's the same. It's not just proclaim the gospel necessarily, but it's to teach the, the biblical truth, the, the counsel of Scripture, and to um, disciple and pour into and teach, essentially. Um, and so lastly, since talking about like, our ministry, is our ministry, our testimony must be public. Jesus' ministry was as public as it can be, especially in contrast to other religions. And so I wonder, like, is the only thing, if people were to say, describe you in one way, like, would it be Christian? And I don't just mean, like, your family and friends or, pe- or coworkers or people who've known you all your life. I also mean, like, a stranger who you only talk to for five minutes on the bus. Like, if, if they're going to walk away with something, what do you want them walking away with? We live in this false um, belief that, you have to cultivate like a perfect relationship of comfortability with someone before you share the gospel with them or um, or like we need like this perfect scenario for all the stars to align. They ask you like what the gospel is. And I don't think either of those things ever happened to Jesus. I think when a door was open, Jesus, the first thing that rolled off his tongue was the gospel. And so I would hope that our ministry, as we partner with Jesus, and we partner in what he's doing, what he's already accomplished in his ministry, that we would also likewise be public, we'd be bold, we'd be courageous in our faith, that we wouldn't be afraid to share the hope that's within us. If we truly believe that this is the greatest news in the world, it's, it's the good news for a reason. The gospel is good news for a reason. I hope that we would share this, but I also don't want to downplay how hard that is. I even find, recognize how much of a coward I am and how foolish, and how quickly I make excuses, and how much I don't want to share the gospel. But I think that's why we start with the Spirit first, and we first recognize our dependency upon the Spirit, and it's the Spirit and Spirit alone who empowers us to be able to live out boldly and courageously. Don't just rely on your own confidence, or your own assurance of the gospel, or, you know, your own wisdom or way to communicate. Lean upon the Spirit and the Spirit alone, and He will Give us the words to say and be able to communicate what we need to communicate when. By the end of the day, it's the simple gospel. It is the simple gospel for a reason. I'm almost done. What is the result of our ministry? This is my last point, I promise. Jeez. Um, just as Jesus taught in synagogues, and oh, everyone comes awake now. It's hilarious. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just as Jesus taught in the synagogues and the fame went out to all the neighboring nations and villages about what he was doing and they glorified in him, the result should be the same for our ministries. Our ministry should not be uh, self-reflection, self-build-up, self-edifying. Or If our name is getting fame, then that's probably problematic. At the end of the day, it should always be Christ and Christ alone. 
And there, there is so much danger in ministry because it's so easy to wrap your identity with your ministry. And based on the results of your ministry, you based on how well you're doing or not. Being in Muslim ministry, if that was the case, I'd be very, very depressed right now. But there's also a pride in, in Christianity and badges. I don't know if you guys have this scenario, but it's like if you go to a church event and you meet someone or you go to a, confer- a Christian conference, you meet someone, and you're just like casually like sharing each other's lives. It's like there's like badges throughout. Like, oh yeah, I, I'm part of a church plan. Like, oh yeah, I do Muslim ministry. It's like you're trying to impress the person. You're, you're maybe this is just me. You're trying to build up like your pride or ego. You know, like, like this is a real thing, especially on the Christian university. It's a real thing for us to take pride in the things we are doing for Jesus in order to get people to respect us and value us and view us more than what we are. And the reality is, if we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, if we are truly doing Christ's ministry, then Christ will receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise that is due to his name and his name alone. And again, we must make sure, we must be, I lied, I I have two more points. (laughs) I feel bad, I'm sorry. (laughs) We must be sure that Christ receives all the glory, not any moral teachers, not any false prophets, not any self-help books or personality tests. It is Christ and his gospel that truly provides all that we need, and thus, like, Christ receives all the glory. My last point. I hope you feel unequipped or unqualified or convicted in some way, shape, or form in the sense of your ministry and what it is and how you're doing it or not doing it. But at the end of the day, like, this isn't a do better. I'm not telling you to go home tonight and just do better. I'm not telling you to check boxes like, oh, I shared the gospel, as accountability questions could potentially get sometimes. This is a a heart posture, a heart change. We um, We must look to Christ and the man on the cross. And we have the same problem as the early church and that and the israelites and that we lack knowledge we lack understanding we we forget who our god is and i want to encourage us to seek after the lord and to seek to understand him because then when you understand him you can love him better and when you love him better you can serve him better and then the kingdom god's kingdom can truly come and this i keep saying the last thing isaiah 9 i read the first two verses but if you're familiar with Isaiah 9, it's not common for those two verses. It's actually common for verses 6 and 7. It reads like this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who we have in our corner. This is who we have supporting us and guiding us and backing us and empowering us the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and upon us being obedient and living for his kingdom, not our own or any of the world's, we see verse 7 come to pass in fruition. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will further the kingdom of God in our lives. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we just thank you and we praise you that you, King of kings and Lord of lords, would take on the mere flesh of man and to walk among us. What is man that you are mindful of him, God? Jesus, we thank you that you are the prophet, that you have brought your word and you have brought the fullness of the counsel of God in this book, Lord. I pray that we would truly seek after it, to treasure it, to marvel after it, Lord, to read what you have done and what your people have done and to absorb the truth as within it. Father, we thank you that, Jesus, you are the priest, that once and for all you now sit at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf, Lord, that you were the perfect sacrifice, and as we move into a time of communion, Lord, we will celebrate that and rejoice in that and what you have done and laying down your life. Ultimately, we praise you, God, as you are the king. And you reign, you rule even now, Lord. In your sovereign will, you bring about all things that you desire to come to pass. Lord, would we live for your kingdom and your kingdom alone? Would we truly, Lord, in every aspect of our life, our heart, soul, mind, strength, have the heart posture to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven in our own lives. It's your holy name, I ask and pray these things. Amen.